0: I'd like to welcome everyone signing on with us on Facebook Live or on our podcast online. Thanks for joining us this morning. It's my great joy to welcome you. My name is Josh Houston. I'm one of the pastors here at City Reach LA. I got to tell you, I am eager to commence this September sermon series that we're starting. We are talking about money this month, about how we relate to money, how God calls us to steward and manage money. And I know this is a sensitive topic because. The church, frankly, has abused money quite a bit in the past. Um, So I am honored and I'm excited to come in and help bring perspective on how do we relate? what's, What's our relationship with our money? What does Jesus call us to? So I'm very excited. And what I want you to hear is this. While the concept of money is going to come up quite a bit this month, what I hope to communicate, what I really hope you get is that more than almost anything, your relationship with money reveals the state of your heart. We like to blame circumstances. We like to blame people and systems and markets for the way that we relate to our money. And, and while those areas, while those arenas do impact us, what they really do is they turn up the heat on exposing what we deeply value. And this is what I think Jesus, this is why I think Jesus talked so much about money. He loved to talk about money. He, did you, I don't know if you know, he talked more about money than he did about love. He talked about money more than he did about faith. He talked about money more than he did about heaven and hell combined. Almost a third of the parables that Jesus told deal with handling money. In the Gospels, these four books that we read about Jesus and what he did, one out of ten verses deal directly with money. Jesus talked about this stuff frequently, I think, to disenchant people. It's just a resource. It's a very powerful resource, but it's just a resource. And he came back to it so often because he knows how human beings use money is an expression of our character. It's an expression of what truly matters to us, what we value deeply, and Jesus is deeply interested in that. So while we're talking money this month, it's, it's kind of peripheral to what I actually want to talk about, what I'm going to talk a lot about this month, which is our hearts. I want to examine soul. I want to dig into these these buried and guarded values that we carry because what we value determines what we do with our money. Does that make sense? So we're going to jump into it. Where we're headed um, this month, we're going to cover mammon. We're going to cover tithing. We're going to cover radical generosity. We're going to hit practical money management. I think that's important. The church often doesn't teach enough on, like, just wise money management. We're going to hit that. I'm thrilled to teach this month to work through this content Um, And to discover how it impacts our church, but beyond our church as well, locally and globally. Today, I want to preach a sermon entitled The Gift of Mammon. Gift of Mammon. And here's my plan I want to talk about America. I want to talk about this, this weird word, Mammon, and scarcity and simplicity. To start, America. I'm an American. I've lived in Southern California my entire life. I grew up in a ghetto town in the IE, San Jacinto, right next to Hemet. I, I, I had a humble childhood. Uh, I remember, like, my family couldn't afford Happy Meals when we go out. We all share one soda together, one big cup. Had hand-me-down clothes. Um, back then, you didn't need too many toys, didn't need technology too much. I mean, Nintendo, sure, right? But everything else, you didn't really need too much besides that. We knew how to entertain ourselves. Do you guys remember those days when like, we could just entertain ourselves? We'd just like, go in a dirt field and figure out how to f- have fun, right? Like, man, those days. But as I got older, my parents started making a little bit more money. We accumulated more stuff. We bought nicer clothes. We bought nicer cars. Had more experiences. And it, I, I wouldn't say it felt like we were rich, but we never lacked. You know, we had the necessities, And my parents would even save, and they would sacrifice to take us on vacations. I graduated high school, got out of Sanha, I went to Vanguard University, and I quickly adapted to OC culture, this culture of consumption. And I learned to to view my reality through this lens of lack. And maybe you can identify where we view our lives through this filter of what we don't have. Have you noticed, though, that when we compare, when we compare when you compare your life against someone else's, we rarely compare it to somebody who has less than us. Usually, we compare upward. I don't make what they make. I can't spend what they spend. I can't afford what they drive or what they wear. I don't have the opportunities that they have. But what what happens when we when we shift the direction that we're comparing? You know, we're, we're right off the back of this trip. Our, our trip took a uh, our church took a trip to Colombia. We we took a team of eight people a couple weeks ago, to serve at an orphanage. I'm finding comparing upwards after that trip seems ludicrous right now. My heart hurts as I compare downward because of what we saw, because of these beautiful children who blessed us with their, their sacrifice to us, their service to us. And I mean, if we want to compare, if we want to play that game, did you know that Almost half the world's population lives on less than $2.50 a day. And did you know to make the cut for the wealthiest 1% in the world, you just need to make $32,000 a year? That's incredible. I mean, I grew up without much, but the older I got, the more comfortable I became with and around money. And you see, we've learned, I've learned that I've become a target by this hyper-consumer, hyper-capitalistic system. Like, they've aimed at me. We're trained to feel lack. Think of how much advertising you see on a daily basis. We're educated to cling to what we have, to grind out for more, and the natural byproduct of a system like that is a collective greed. It's a corporate greed. America is filthy wealthy, but in this nation, we also have incredible poverty. And the older I get, the more it appears to me that the system is set up to protect the people at the top. Did you guys know that the three wealthiest Americans have the same amount of wealth as the poorest half of the U.S. population? Savage capitalism. It rules the day. I mean, we're only a month or two out from starting to see the holiday push in stores, right? I have to prep myself for this. I know that I'm going to be emotionally blasted I'm going to be psychologically manipulated for a few months. Companies are going to attempt to convince us that our lives are not as they should be, that we don't have enough, that what we have is not quality enough, that it's not safe enough, that it's not sexy enough. Greed has become one of our cultural expressions. And they say you create culture by what you celebrate and what you tolerate. Any organization, any family, any system, you create culture by what you celebrate and what you tolerate. And what does America celebrate and tolerate? Consumption. We love it. We can't get enough of it. We're incessantly celebrating having more. But we haven't figured out how to celebrate having enough. We want more. Money, food, experiences, possessions. We want bigger Houses, screens, refrigerators, cups of coffee. Whoa. You know what I'd love to see? I'd love to see a big name company, a big name brand do like a year long campaign that encourages Americans to be satisfied with enough rather than accumulate more and bigger. It's hard to imagine something like that, right? It's hard, I mean, it's hard because we've reached a point, it seems like a point of no return. Where where more outweighs content. Where where self-indulgence outweighs sustainability. Where excess outweighs a reasonable distribution of wealth. Greed has become the American dream. And I'm an optimist, but to be candid, I'm nervous for our country. Because despite still many Christians plastering all over social media that we are a Christian nation, It doesn't take a genius to see that God's not on the pedestal here. As a nation, our consumer system is unquestionably the priority. Everything else, including God, it takes a backseat to consumption. And the fuel for for a consumption economy is money. Money matters to us. It really matters to Americans. Now, personally, I find money fascinating. Seriously, I was thinking about it more and more this week. It's pieces of paper. It's it's metal, and we ascribe value to it. I mean, I could get someone to do virtually anything for me, anything I can think of, just by giving them some paper. That's crazy. I mean, it's organic. It's not, it's not organic. It's not like this thing that like comes out of the ground that grows on trees. I know we talk, we joke about that, but it's not organic. It's this stuff that we've invented. It's an idea, it's a construct, and it influences goals and dreams and realities of humanity. That is so fascinating to me. That's intriguing that we just play into this thing. I know we don't really have a choice. You can't just be like, well, I'm not going to do the whole money game anymore. I know you can't totally do that. Well, there's Bitcoin and so, sure, whatever. But still, it's like, we, like money is it's, it's such a crazy concept. And one of the points that I really want to drill home during this series is that there's nothing inherently wrong with the stuff. Money is not the root of all evil. People most misquote this all the time from Scripture. In a letter Paul wrote to his friend Timothy, he warns about the love of money, but he does not warn against money. I actually want to show it for a second. I want to read through this. And I'll, I, check out how appropriate this is to our time and our context. This is in 1 Timothy. Paul says this to his friend. But godliness with contentment, that's great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, we can take nothing out of it. If we have food, we have clothing, we'll be content with that. Those who want to get rich, they fall into the temptation and the trap, into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierce themselves with many griefs. And it's a crucial distinction. Money is not evil. Paul says this love of money, it's a root of all kinds of evil. The fact is money is a wonderful source. It's a wonderful resource. It facilitates the sharing and the exchange of goods and services. We connect with other people. We connect with other people groups all over the globe to benefit each other through exchange. However, somewhere along the way, the power we gave money outran, it, it, like, it sprinted past its original function. We've been seduced into valuing money over soul. We've given it more meaning than human life. And human history illustrates this vividly, right? We've done terrible things in the name of money. We've killed for it, we've enslaved other people for it, we've enslaved ourselves in this addictive pursuit of it. In the United States, we've made possessions, we've made made money, we've made this type of success the goal, and we have achieved that goal. We are wildly successful. But in the process, we jumped over this critical principle that when you measure success and failure by currency, by net worth, we not only consume everything in front of us, We consume each other, and we consume ourselves. Now, my guess is for for most of us, if we're honest, we could probably admit that we have this kind of like deeply conflicted relationship with money. That that maybe too frequently, our behaviors that surround money seem to be at odds with what we deeply value. Because unfortunately, when money gets involved, people tend to set aside their priorities for a moment. People set aside their convictions for the moment when money gets involved. And I'd like to submit this morning that at some point in our lives, maturity will invite us to make a decision to choose how we will relate to wealth. Maturity is going to ask you, maybe Jesus is going to ask you, maybe the Holy Spirit is going to ask you to choose how you will relate to wealth, having it or lacking it. And if we don't make that decision we default to the voice of culture making that decision for us. We allow culture to shape our view and our relationship with money if we don't intentionally make that decision. We get to make the decision or culture shapes it for us. And that that second option, honestly, that scares the hell out of me, guys. That scares me to just say, culture, you can shape what, what, what I do here. You can shape my heart and you can form my heart regarding what I do with money. That scares me. So I want to talk about what do we do with this. If you haven't thought about that already, I want to help you think about that today. And if you know me, you know I like coming back to this guy Jesus because I think he's brilliant. I don't just think he's God. I think he's brilliant. So I spent a lot of time in the Gospels because this is where we read about what he said and what he did. And I don't know if you've noticed this before. and I I just wanted to point this out today. Jesus' ministry did not center on telling everybody to worship him. The church kind of gets stuck on this, and I think it's good. Jesus is God. We worship God. Yes, those two go together. Sure. But Jesus' like, ministry wasn't about running around first century Israel saying, hey, everybody, I'm God. Worship me. That wasn't what he, that's not what he did. You know what he said? He said, follow me. Do as I do. Change the way you think. Change the way you do. Change the way you be to my way because I know how to live life best. You see, my assumption is, since I didn't invent life, and he did, he gets to tell me what to do with it. And that's kind of what I default to. I should probably take cues from Jesus on what to do with my life. So this morning, I want to take a look at one of those times that Jesus talks about money. Because he's got some really good stuff to say about money. If you have your Bible or your Bible app, I want to invite you to turn with me to Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16, we've got Bibles on the, on the connection table back there if you actually want to hold one. If you don't own a Bible, please take one of those home with you. If you have the exact same Bible as me, I'm on page 1046, in case you do. And I'm going to have the text up on the screen as well. This is Luke 16, starting in verse 11. If you've not been trustee, trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? If you've not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. We're going to jump into this. I think it's interesting that Jesus contrasts worldly wealth with true riches. You notice that? He distinguishes between wealth and riches. Apparently for Jesus, owning a lot doesn't make one rich. For him, true riches goes way deeper than net worth. He says, if a person can't be trusted managing little, why should they be trusted with things that really matter? And this is a principle we see many times in scripture. If you want to be responsible for great things, you need to prove yourself faithful with small things first. And this is why I just want to be candid with you, myself, Gordon Chu, our treasurer, the rest of our board, we take so intentionally how we manage our finances here at City Reach LA. Because if God can't trust us with what he's already put in our hands, why is he going to entrust us with anymore? That would be ridiculous of him. And I want you to hear from your pastor right now that we manage with integrity, that we manage our finances with excellence, the finances that you give to and through this church, because how we manage money, it makes eternal impacts. We take that very seriously. Jesus says, if you haven't been trustworthy with someone else's property, why would somebody give give you property of your own? This part's really important. He's suggesting here, along with many other teachings of his throughout the gospels, that all of our wealth belongs to God. That we are managing God's resources. This is a dominant thing, of, theme of Scripture. We are managing God's things. I think about people like, like Gordon Chu, who manages financial and legal accounts, or Annie, Annie who manages high rises in our church, or Amber, who manages Starbucks stores. Honestly, these people are a big deal. I just think that. I do. They are a big deal, but do not be confused. They do not own these things. Amber can't walk in with a couch or her bed at a Starbucks and just Netflix, right? This is not her store. She manages the store. That is not hers. These people are given responsibility of caring for someone else's things. And this is how scripture paints the picture regarding our wealth. We are God's managers. Now, we don't know why some people are entrusted with more than others. And personally I used to really struggle with this. Why evil people are given so much sometimes? Why why beautiful and trustworthy and faithful souls are given so little sometimes? That, I mean it used to I used to play the California lottery when I was younger. <laughs> Because of all the good that I would do with all this money. God, you know we could change the world if you just let me win like $10 million. Gosh, why do you keep letting idiots win? Man, right? And beyond the lottery, why are some entrusted with more money and opportunities and possessions and networks? They used to gnaw at me. But I've gotten to the point where I don't need it to make sense anymore because I've realized that Scripture really doesn't try to explain or justify it. You know what Scripture is clear on? Is that what you do have has been entrusted to you by God. And he wants to see if you'll be responsible with what he's put in your hands. This is not your stuff. This is God's stuff. So take care of it. He continues, no one can serve two masters. Either you'll hate the one and love the other or be devoted to the one and despise the other. You can't serve both God and money. And this is where you may have heard the term mammon before. Some older translations use the word mammon for money. Anybody heard the word mammon before? Maybe new for some people, maybe old for others. I don't know how familiar you are with with this word. Maybe you've never heard it. Maybe you've heard too much about it. Mammon is one of those concepts that, that time and context have gotten in the way that made us stumble over the translation. You see, the, the church, the Christian church, unfortunately, has taken this word and made it filthy. If you've been taught about mammon, you're probably, you've probably been told that, that it's demonic, that it's a false god, that it's this callous greed and the corruption of riches. Mammon's gotten some like, pretty bad press over the years. Interestingly enough, Mammon is simply an ancient term for wealth. And in its Hebrew and in its Aramaic context, it didn't carry a negative tone. It wasn't inherently noble or corrupt. It just was. The issue was not having mammon. It was how one used it. And unfortunately, the church has taught this broad spectrum on wealth. And when I say broad, I mean expansive. On one end, we've got, what, we've got the prosperity gospel, Right? That faith and that more donations and more spiritual discipline, these are gonna increase your wealth. And on the other end, demonizing wealth, glorifying poverty, and both, they just miss what Jesus actually taught about wealth, about mammon. This is really important. This is like his mindset on it, his his his, his framework for it was that one's relationship with mammon, with, with finances, with possessions how they valued it all. Not how the government, not how the economy valued it, but how a person's heart related to and valued wealth. That was far more important than how much they possessed. This is how Jesus views money. Your relationship with money is far more significant than how much you have. Money is not evil. Mammon is not a curse. It's the love of money it's the ruthless pursuit of mammon that produces all kinds of evil in our world. So what Jesus says is, you can't serve both God and mammon. And the context here, he's not, he's not talking about working two jobs. He's referring to the master-slave relationship. You see, Jesus' teaching style, I love it. It's when, you, when you watch him, he's consistently using illustrations and metaphors and stories that the people are familiar with. And Jesus steps into a culture and a time where slave labor is prominent. It's all over the place. So he's tapping into this context. I mean, I just imagine the conversation. He's like, hey, so you guys know how a slave can't have two masters at the same time? In the same way, your life can be lived only to one master. You can only be lived in service. Your life can only be lived in service. It's going to be lived in service to someone or something. Don't doubt that. You're going to serve something, but you can't have two masters. I think this part's really important. You can have both God and money, but you cannot serve both God and money. It's really important we get this. You can have both God and money. You cannot serve both. Jesus is using this concept of mammon to reveal what's deepest in our hearts. Who's your master? Who do you serve? Who do you sacrifice for? Because you will sacrifice for your God. And if you sacrifice for wealth, but you will not sacrifice for God, don't deceive yourself. Master is, mammon is your master. If you're going to sacrifice a lot for wealth and you won't do that for God, don't be deceived. That's your God. That's your master. And some think that just because they don't have a lot of wealth, wealth that means that they're not a slave to mammon. The truth is you don't have to be wealthy to serve mammon. The poor just, they they have just as much potential for greed as the affluent. Why? Because being a slave to mammon has very little to do with possessions. It has everything to do with the posture of your heart. There's this book called The Soul of Money. It's by a woman named Lynn Twist. She's this global activist and fundraiser. And in her book, She describes what she calls three toxic myths of scarcity, and she writes that these myths provide the framework for most of our interactions with money. It's really fascinating, and I think what she she writes is incredibly insightful, specifically in light of the conversation regarding mammon. So I wanted to share them with with you today. Her first myth is that there's not enough to go around. There's not enough to go around. We're made to believe that there's not enough wealth to go around for everyone that somebody's gonna be left out. Someone's gonna be left out. So if there's not enough for everyone, taking care of yourself and your own is really your only option. So you getting yours, especially at the expense of others, that's unfortunate. But it's unavoidable, really. And, th- and that makes it a valid approach to your finances. But Twist says scarcity is a lie. It's a, it's a false set of assumptions. And that when we buy into it, this consumer beast takes over us. And, it, and it, this builds on to the second, which is that, that more is better. The second myth is that more is better. If there's not enough to go around, that must mean more is better. But what this breeds is this competitive culture. A culture of accumulation, a culture of greed and gluttony. And what it does is it distracts us from living intentionally with what we do have because we're constantly grasping at what we don't have. And I find this incredibly ironic, hear this, that that our drive to enlarge our net worth, it diminishes our our ability to deepen our self-worth. The more I'm pushing for more wealth, the less capacity I have to get myself and to understand what God's actually doing in my heart. And so this, this myth is the driving force for violence and war and corruption and exploitation that human beings experience. Because in this worldview, right here, even too much is not enough. We got to get more. And then the third myth that builds off that is that's just the way it is. There's not enough to go around, and more is better, and it's just the way it is. The hole is too big. There's no way out. It's just the way the cookie crumbles. So you better learn to adapt to it. The problem is that this myth has protected institutionalized racism and prejudice and discrimination against minorities for generations. And what this myth does is it justifies our greed. It justifies our apathy. It justifies our inaction to do anything about this death-giving system. What I'd like to suggest is that there really isn't a way it is or a way it isn't. What exists is the way we choose to be and do in the world. We can change. What's in question is whether or not we want to. Now you put these three myths together and you get something that looks like America. This is our nation's reality. But I think you should ask yourself, do you want this to be your reality? Because in my opinion, if you serve mammon, that will be your reality. If you serve mammon, that's what you get. But if we can learn to serve God and manage mammon that can't be our reality because when you know that there's enough it inspires empathy it inspires sharing it inspires collaboration with others knowing that that more doesn't necessarily mean better and that we can change the way it is it opens us up to new realities regarding wealth so how do we de- how do we redeem the brokenness like how do we make any steps forward in progress with this. I wanna share a concept with you today. It's an old spiritual discipline and it goes by the name simplicity. And you can go read a bunch on it. I would encourage you to go read a bunch on it, it's great. But today, I just wanna offer four suggestions for how to lean into a life of simplicity. Or we could put it this way, four suggestions suggestions to deny mammon governing power over your life. I'm not gonna give you governing power of my life, mammon. The first one is this. Learn to enjoy things without owning them. Simplicity, learn to enjoy things without owning them. You can appreciate film without owning every Blu-ray. You can lose yourself in cars without having to own four. You can adore fashion and not have a full walk-in closet. You don't have to own something to be passionate about it because passion can be a slippery slope to consumption. Passion can be a slippery slope to more is better and you're never satisfied with enough. So learn to to own or learn to to enjoy things, to really enjoy things without having to own them. Another one, buy things for their usefulness rather than their status. This is good. Buy something because you need it, not because of the way you're going to look about it. Can I be blunt? Who cares what people think? And I don't just mean that theoretically. I mean actually. Like, who cares? I just watched the movie Eighth Grade. Anybody seen it yet? It's in select theaters. Man, it puts you right into the roller coaster of emotion that is eighth grade. It's done well. I mean, I was anxious the entire film. It's, it is awkward. Like, oh, my gosh. I, I, I felt like when I got done the movie, I was like, I need to go do something relaxing because I feel like on edge right now. You feel this obsession with peer validation. Like, they, I mean, the, movies, the, the movie makers do a really good job with this mania over what will they think. And while you're watching, you're like, this is ridiculous. <laughs> Why would anybody live like this? But I couldn't help thinking the entire movie, gosh, adults are no different. We act the same way. Most of us have just learned how to hide better than eighth graders. We still obsess over what others think about us we just got better at making it look like we don't care. Well, some of us. Some people. <laughs> when, <laughs> I, I'm not going to go there. When it comes to the management of your wealth, when it comes to the management of your mammon, peer validation will destroy you. If you're concerned over status, it will siphon the life out of you. So as best you can, take out of the equation how will I be viewed as as objectively as possible. Approach your wealth, as little or as much as you have, by choosing to purchase things because they will benefit your life, not because you want to be viewed a certain way. Another one, give things away. We have this insane attachment to things. I mean, probably, I, I bet like psychologists would say it's actually insane. Like, it's not just like, oh, that's insane. No, like, we have an insane attachment to, to things. We crave things we don't need. We buy things we don't really even want that much to impress people we don't even really care about that much. We call greed ambition or industry. I love this. Richard Foster, he's one of my favorites. He says that the modern hero is the poor boy who's purposefully become rich rather than the rich boy who's voluntarily become poor. That's like the the hero story, right? We've got to learn how to deaccumulate. Masses of things that are not needed, they complicate life. If you've never seen the the documentary Minimalism, it's pretty good. I just felt like I had to go give everything away after I watched that documentary. (laughs) We got so much stuff, and the truth is most of us could probably get rid of half of our stuff, and it wouldn't even be that big of a sacrifice for us. Probably. So develop a discipline of giving things away. Your time. I don't just mean stuff. Develop a a discipline of generosity. Your time. Your material possessions. Financial gifts. Opportunities. Compliments. What if you gave away compliments like you were making it rain? When we learn to stop grasping at mammon, Open palms rather than white knuckles. Something in our souls is set free. So hold your wealth loosely. And then lastly, seek first the kingdom of God. This is Jesus' language, if you're not familiar with this. In one of his teachings, he says, don't worry about what you're going to eat or what you're going to drink or what you're going to wear. Why? Because your heavenly Father, he knows what you need before you even ask for it. So seek first the kingdom of God, all the other stuff that's going to be added to your life. What does this mean? The kingdom of God. If you want to get familiar with Jesus, you got to get familiar with the kingdom of God. He uses the language a lot. The kingdom of God is wherever God is made king. It's not heaven. It's not in eternity. It's, it can be right now. The kingdom of God is in this room. Because we say, God, you are king in this room. It could be in your heart and mind, it can be in your home, it could be in your marriage, it can be in your job, it can be in our church. The kingdom of God is where God is made master. He's the one that's ruling. He's the one that gets governing reality. So Jesus says, seek first that kingdom. Make your first priority, your only priority to make God king of your life. And when you do that, your heavenly father takes care of everything you need. Not what you think you need. (laughs) Big distinction. What you actually need, seek first the kingdom of God. Simplicity. There's much more to it, but like, I just wanted to kind of to focus in on these four things, the things that can be really helpful. A life defined by sim- simplicity is one way we push back against service to mammon. It's one way we join God in, in redeeming this relationship that we have with wealth. As we manage well what God has put into our hands, what he's entrusted into our hands, And it sets us up to own our wealth rather than our wealth owning us. I want to ask Jackie to come back up in our prayers for today. I want to tie a bow on this. Serve God, manage mammon. If we can, like, sum it up, what's... What is our intended relationship with our money? Serve God, manage mammon. Church, mammon is a gift. It's a wonderful blessing, but it is incredibly seductive. The challenge is, can we put wealth in its rightful place? Because Jesus is clear, you're going to serve an authority. You don't get a choice in that. You will submit to a master. And no one else can choose that master for you. This is what free will is. You get to choose. So he poses the question, will you attempt to use God to serve or to elevate your service to mammon? Or will you use this resource? Will you use this gift to elevate your service to God? And I want you to know, I've prayed for your hearts this week. I have enlisted other friends to pray for your hearts this week. That God would set our church free from this ruthless pursuit of wealth. That He would set our hearts aflame to the ruthless pursuit of Him. That we would show ourselves faithful with what we have so He can entrust unto us more. And so that we can demonstrate God, we want to partner with you locally and globally on mission to redeem the brokenness of our city and our world. May we be that church. May we be that church. And God, that's what our hearts cry out to you today for. In this moment, in this room, as best we can, we say our hearts are yours. We say you are king, that we submit to you that we're grateful for whatever wealth it is that you've put into our hands and that we want to use this and steward this well to help redeem brokenness, to help help give life and give hope so god use us and i pray in this moment that whatever is needed in this room whatever whatever it is that you were doing on the hearts of our people in this room or maybe even listening to a podcast right now god that you would soften our hearts to be able to say yes to your redemptive work in us so help us soften our hearts god make our hearts not desire the accumulation of more, the consumption of more, God, but that we would simply be satisfied in you. We want that, God. Grant that request. So we ask this in your name, Jesus.